This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. Our special guest today is Blaine Smith. Hey, Blaine, thanks for hanging out with us today. Yeah, anytime, man. It's good to see you again. So, Blaine, I know you're coming to us from upstate New York, where at least right now you're getting buried in snow. Better you than me. That's why I left New York. I want nothing to do with If I never see snow again in my lifetime, life will be good. <laughs> that was kind of my goal traveling over the last few years. It's finding a warm place to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right now, it's like sixty in Miami, and I'm 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 already looking at like South American countries to move. <laughs> now that being said, I just got married, and my wife is Colombian, and she's never seen snow, so I know I have at least one more snow in me because she has to experience it but all right so enough about that we this podcast is all about you and so give everybody who's listening the two minute sort of drill on what you're doing today so who is what is Blaine doing today um mostly I'm in the world of go um all day every day at a subspace and we're doing uh i'm doing telemetry work on the pops and routers that is part of the subspace network um so we're using go on the control plane to sort of dig into the net the network cards that are on the servers pinging other servers across the internet and collecting all those ping stats and oh wait wait back, back up what does subspace do because i don't if anybody's watching the youtube the t-shirt is Really cool, actually. I love it. But tell tell me what your what the product is, because I'm not sure what that what it is. The product is that is basically network as a service. So you have things like functions as a service from AWS. You have infrastructure as a service from you know, all the cloud providers. So we're geared towards network as a service. So you can sign up for subspace, um, put in your credit card. You can then have a server that you own and spin up a either packet accelerator or a tunnel and you'll give you'll be given a subspace ip address and then you can use that ip address instead of your dedicated ip and push traffic over the subspace network um, for better reliability for better speeds um, under any circumstances that you want so it's basically just network as a service that you can provision as as an engineer Okay, so I'm going to be really, I'm going to tell me that I'm wrong. I feel like this is, you're acting like a proxy server for my browser at the end of the day. Like why, I'm, I'm, why is this better than me just going through my ISP? Normal internet, because the normal internet does not um, account for more real-time applications. So that's what we're sort of trying to, trying to fix is the real-time WebRTC peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, like that that sort of like high traffic, video traffic that we're trying to solve. Um, and on each of all of our POPs, uh, we have real-time analysis on on what the next best 
path should be taken for your specific packet. Um, and those pops will react to any sort of network downtime um, or loss or latency or jitter. Are you your own a are you your own AS? Are you your own autonomous um, system? We are actually it's 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 good you brought that up. Um, we're a pretty high ranked uh, AS in the internet exchanges, so we're just behind Facebook and Amazon. Wow. Um, we're wow. above Net we're above Netflix at this point. Um, so we're trying to shoot for Cloudflare. We're on our way up, but we're not that high yet. We have about a hundred and 190 pops somewhere on there 120 190 we're in the hundreds yeah oh my goodness okay no that's serious serious stuff so so we're going to get back to you but i got to ask this last question so what was everybody thinking about when facebook uh shut down their their uh as network to the world <laughs> <laughs> um uh don't uh, don't put all of your credentials and badges behind the same domain, I guess. <laughs> Everybody started wondering where the keys were, right? Over there, like, okay, do we have keys? <laughs> that was a fun time. Wow, man. So you're learning, like, so you're learning, it has to be some low, lower level networking and stuff, and you're, and you're leveraging a lot of go for that then. Yeah, we're, and we're actually, because... Um, um, it just seems like a really good fit for, for the Go side, but we're also marrying that to uh, eBPF and tapping right right into the uh, the kernel itself. So we're using both of those to not only do telemetry, but um, sort of do like control plane like management. Wow. Okay, we're gonna get back to this. This is fascinating. I had you know for some reason there's so much kind of gaming companies where you live. I I had this sense that you were gonna be doing something on the gaming side of things. So this is, how long have you been at Subspace? Uh, since the beginning of December, actually. This is fresh. Ah, so nice. I'm, um, yeah, I'm just taking into it now, but I love the space. I, I had, uh, I dipped my toe into this sort of space when I was at my previous job um, because it was in gaming. There's a lot of like real-time gaming traffic and I, I just sort of loved it. And once the opportunity presented itself, I, I went all in. No, it's brilliant. I think this is good stuff to learn. The, the, the networking side is, I wanted to take a computer networking class. Just, I know enough to get in trouble and I know enough to code at the socket level, but I don't know much more after that, right? And I just hate things being a black hole. So now I got a good resource here to, <laughs> to, uh, to go below level L4, right? <laughs> oh, we're that low. Okay. All right, so let's, let's, okay, so we got that. We're going to get back to that before we are done. But I'm going to ask you my favorite question that I ask every single guest. I want you to jump back in the time machine and think about that first kind of experience, the first experience that pops into your head of you working on a computer and, and having that moment of joy or that moment of like, like I can control this thing or, you know, that moment that you have as a programmer even today. What was that first moment? Do you remember that? Actually, I do. So it was back when my parents bought me a, the single unit AST machines. Um, I don't even think it had a DVD drive in that point. It may have, but that was that was when like it was Encarta ninety five or ninety six somewhere around that point. I remember having the Encarta CD. Um, and for those of you who don't know that, that's basically how um, it was Encyclopedia Britannica on a disc before Wikipedia was a thing. <laughs> um, and I remember trying to teach myself um, dialing into AOL 
to get information on how to do HTML and write HTML. And the, the, one of the first websites I was teaching myself to build was a Metallica dedication site of all of their CDs that I had to sort of lay out all the, the graphics and download all this stuff and put them in tables and space them. And it was just a really awesome experience to write a bunch of lines of HTML in a text file and then switch over to a browser and hit a button and see like completely different representation of what I typed. And the feedback was just immediate. When did you graduate high school? And what, and do you remember kind of how old you were when you did, when you did your Metallica website? Yeah, I graduated high school in 2000 and I did the Metallica site, right? Probably around before, before high school, 90, yeah, about 94. So I started high school in 96. So 94, 90, 94, 95. Now, when I was in middle school and high school back in the 80s, the thing to do was to get your denim jacket and paint the album cover on the back, right? So we all had our, did you do that? Was that still a thing back then? I mean, you're Metallica. Metallica would have been one of the, one of the bands for that. That would have been one, yeah. That, I did not have, I don't you know, I don't think I've ever owned a denim jacket, to be honest. No. But I had enough, I'd ha I had enough like hockey jackets and stuff like that that I would put patches on. So. Ah, oh, okay. Ah, oh, just, just. When I, when I meet somebody who's like a little older like that and was into the, into the metal, like, like I have to ask the question because it was such a Iron Maiden, Metallica, Judas Priest, like everyone had the, the paintings on the back of those denim jackets. It was cool. So basically in middle school, what this computer, was it your parents' computer? That, where did the computer come from? Do you remember? Or was... Yeah, it was the family one. Um, I, I can't really remember like why why I wanted one, but I, in middle school, we had, um, we had computer labs where you could go in and, um, play Oregon trail, like on the old Apple twos and stuff like that. So like I had exposure to those computers back then. I remember going to the library and playing the same things as well. Um, and I think I just kept pestering my parents and like, I want one, I want one, we need one, we need one. And they finally broke down. Um, they bought it and it was one that spoke too. like, remember when it was like the first times like computers had speakers and it could like dictate words that you typed on the screen in like this weird archaic computer voice. Yeah. I remember they, uh, they, they presented that to me. They walked me into my, into my bedroom and they had my eyes closed and they, my mother hit play and the computer spoke like, you know, welcome Blaine. <laughs> and that was it. And then I was hooked basically from that. Yeah. So that brings up two questions now. Now, what, do you have, did you, or did you, do you have siblings that you had to compete? Oh no, it was in your bedroom. So essentially this computer was yours. And then were your, was your mom or your dad, were they technical? Like somebody had to program it when you walked in. So. Um, yeah, I, both of my parents are pretty well off and they understood like how to do it. My dad came from more analytical math background. Um, my mother was really good at problem solving. So I think between the both of them, they were able to sort of like put it together. Um, my mother spent years as an administrative assistant. So she was around the technology enough to sort of like be dangerous with it and, and sort of help out. Do you remember kind of freaking out when you saw the computer in your room? Like that was unexpected, right? Oh, completely. Like I, it, I was just blown away because I couldn't imagine like the process that they had to go to like to get that. I basically knew how much like they were roughly costing at that time. Yeah, and in, at 
not everybody had one too, because usually you would have to go to a school or a library to use a computer. So to have something like that, it's like the old cell phones. If you had somebody that had a bag cell phone in the car, they're like, wow, that's not a common piece of appliance. So. so now all I can think of is you're in middle school, you've been given this computer and now the rules have to set in because you're never leaving your room. So did you, did you, did they start to tell you to kick you outside, go out and play? Or I, I imagine you were, were you playing hockey at the time there too? You must've been into. Yep. I was playing hockey. So I had that, that was, that was the forced activity that you know, I had a schedule for, but I know I could not use the computer until my homework was done first. So always home right after school, finish the homework, um, go outside for a little bit. And then usually it was after dinner, you know, when it's dark out, everybody's back at home. Now it's computer time. So while there was still light outside, utilize the light and stay outside. So did, so this computer must've already had a modem, right? So at this point you were already doing dial up. You were, um, and do you remember, I want to go back to the website real quick, because what's interesting to me is once you had your own computer, did you always have the idea of building that website? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested when you got interested in maybe doing some of this programming because you're playing games, right? Everybody's gaming, but yeah, not everybody switches to programming. So no, it was AOL online. It was all of, all of that. Um, yeah, there wasn't any, wasn't even really any like dot coms or dot nets or dot orgs anywhere. It's you just get on AOL, put in the keyword, go to Ford, go to, um, I can't even remember the, what Lycos I think was one of the search engines at the time. Um, yeah, as as I sort of was browsing, you know, these resources online, I was always just curious, like how, how, where are they? Like how are they put together? Like why does it look that way? Um, and so I started you know, searching to figure out like how how they sort of did this stuff, and then I stumbled across, you know, that you could sort of view the source of some of these places. And so I started poking at the sources of some of these websites, like oh. Okay, like I'm seeing these sort of like tag and structure things, and I'm like, well, there must be some common language that they're all using. And so I started researching how how HTML is a a thing and a language and a spec that all of these different organizations are using to build their presence online, um, and started reading the resources there. And then I think right around that time you started to see like the books like html for dummies and yahoo for dummies like the big the dummies books just became the go-to place to learn anything you wanted to learn for technical information so go to the bookstore i remember around that time i would go to the bookstore and buy a, a books on programming whatever that was that i was into at the moment or something new and interesting yeah like html 4.2 4.1 <laughs> Like every, every point release was a new dummies book. It's kind of sad because I go into the bookstore now, the Barnes and Noble, and I, I do still force myself to walk over to that bookshelf, which has gotten smaller and smaller, but the, it's almost like the book selection is almost irrelevant now on that shelf. It's really sad, right? Yeah. It's really unfortunate. I know I do the same thing too. Like I want to walk over to that bookshelf and just experience the the act of shopping for a technical book. Just, I want to browse. I want to see what's out there just as a, as a, as that process. And, you know, I wish I could see some of the, 
some of the recent Go books or the Rust books or some of the other like more technical books, but you know, um, you're just finding like Office, <laughs> Internet Explorer, like you know all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I have this like I want to retire. I want to print like a thousand versions of the new Go notebook and go to store to store and just put one on the shelf without anybody seeing it, right? Just put them on the shelf and then <laughs> just to have it there. Like when I wrote the first book, Go in Action, all I wanted to do was see the book on the shelf. And I only found it in one store in Arizona. That's all I ever found. Like it was kind of a bummer. I mean, when I saw it, it was brilliant, but I'd never seen it again. So, yeah, there's an experience about shopping for a technical book in like Barnes & Noble that was kind of magical at the time. I love doing it when, when that was the only way to do it. You go and you sit in the corner like this, the, the, cause the computer books is always in like the far corner. Like nobody ever goes there. So it's always in the back. So anytime you were going to that section, there was always a chair nearby where you could just sort of sit in the corner next to a window and just be quiet and check out the chapters for 20 minutes and decide if you want the book. And then you went home and you had this book and now you were good. You were good for like a week because you were going to just not you're going to engross yourself into this book, right? Like I remember how excited I was when I found my first C plus plus book when I wanted to learn that. And I mean, yeah, you're right. That whole experience is it's not the same finding it on Amazon and even getting it in two days. Like it's just not it's not the same. Okay, so um, let's keep going. So you, you start to get into high school. I, I, high school is those formative years where I tell my kids this. I may have said this on the show before. Like. Everything, at least for everything up until maybe you're about 30, is based on a four-year cycle. So, like, when you start high school, the next four years sets you up for the following four years. And those four years set you up for the following four years. And if you fall behind, you start to fall behind with your peers because they're on that four-year cadence and, and you're not. So I, I try to tell my kids all the time, it's like, you really got to get to the finish line in these four years. I don't care how you do it or you're going to fall behind. So and high school is kind of where that starts, right? It, it's it's those four years to graduate high school to be able to make the next decision. So what is it? What, what's going on when you're in high school? Are you what's your almost your personal priority there? Is it school to get to university? Is it sports? Is it like what is it that's really consuming you? Um, during those four years? It was it was purely academic. And, and at that time, I actually had a choice between high schools. So in where I grew up, you could go to the local high school uh, for your town. Um, but there was a, a trade school, a technical school that anybody from the surrounding five towns could attend as long as your mailing address was in those five towns. Um, and that was like any other trade school. It had plumbing, it had masonry, it had electrical, it had nursing like that baker uh, baking culinary arts that, that kind of stuff so it was traditionally back then it those schools were looked at to kids that would go to that school learn their trade get their apprenticeship or whatever certification they needed go get a job after after high school and college was usually not a not a future thing for them um, but they did have an it program there and so it took some fairly severe convincing going to open houses at both the local high school and this trade school um, for my parents to see that the trade school had the equipment, they had the knowledge, they had everything in place that I wanted to go and take in order to set myself up for college. 
So, but that's a high school diploma at the end of that trade school, yeah, right? This it's, isn't just it's, a, it's a not traditional school. trade school. Yeah. Okay. So the way the high school was laid out academically was for the first uh, freshman year, um, it always alternated on two-week cycles. So you went to a week of academics, math, science, English, and then the, the other weeks you would go to shop. And for your freshman year, for the majority of it, you would visit a different shop every freshman year. So I went through masonry. I went through everything my freshman year just to get a taste of each trade. And at the end of freshman year, you would pick the top three trades that you wanted to pick. And then if you were accepted into that shop, you would then finish your remaining three years of high school on the same cadence, week of academics, week of shop. Um, and my shop was then IT. So in that program, I learned binary and hex arithmetic. I learned networking and routing. I learned HTML, learned Java, learned some Unix, learned JavaScript, Java server pages, ASP, um, local area networks, wide area networks. So I, I touched all of that through my... Right. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. I got a whole bunch of questions here because this sounds like an amazing sort of opportunity educationally, right? Did Is this, is this still in practice today? Does this school still, it still exist? Still in practice, so, yep. It's, it's, you know, down here in Miami, at least, they try to have these uh, charter schools where the school focuses on a particular type of subject, but it's not like this, right? Like, like you're getting your high school diploma education at the same time you're, you're learning a trade. You didn't have to wait till after. Um, but there's no sports then in this school. There's no clubs. There's no kind of activities. Well, there is. There is. I, I played. I played. I played varsity hockey. There was hockey, basketball. It was all. I think the, the high school was a division three school, depending on the sport. Um. So yeah, there was hockey. The, the only thing that I think wasn't there at the time that I wanted to play was lacrosse. But they had track. They had cross country, swimming, everything. Football. Yep. This is an amazing. You know, I as my I got two boys now that are they finished high school. They're trying to figure out what to do, and I try to share with them all the time that, and I don't know why we have this negativity in our head about trades, but we lack really well skilled trades people today. The electrician, the plumber, everybody's kind of from my experience, at least Miami, everybody's hacking it, right? Like, and in Germany, it used to be a thing where you went to. I don't know if it was. I've heard that back in the day, you went into a trade school in Germany. You became a master plumber or master electrician or master roofer or whatever that was, right? Like, I feel like we're lacking that. And this school kind of brings it, brings it back. Yeah. And the icing on the cake um, for all seniors, uh, if you had the GPA and the grades up to, up to par, um, instead of going a week of academics and a week of shop where shop week is still doing your trade, but in a educational setting, they would work with surrounding businesses where you just go to work instead. So I had my first job as a senior in high school programming an ASP doing database work, that kind of stuff. So I got, I got hands-on experience and all those hours that I went to work counted towards my my diploma to graduate. Oh, so you didn't get paid. I got paid. But, and you got paid. So you got paid. That's some. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, you're not getting paid. Right. But you got paid 
and your hours went towards your uh, completion of your. Dude, I don't know why this isn't modeled everywhere in the country. I'm I'm super super confused about this. Yeah, they're really ahead of their time. They did a really good job with it. I'm trying to convince my boys to consider a trade. Like, you 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 work forever. It's in such demand, and and but that's that's amazing. Okay, so my guess then is as you're going through high school, you kind of already know what you want to do, and not only that, you're literally working towards it. So. By the time you graduate high school, you're already working at this company. Like, what? What's next, dude? What do you do after high school? I, I can't even imagine the options that you have. Are you thinking university? Are you thinking stay in the workforce? I my plan when I got I chose the high school specifically to go to college. So that was my I had an eight year, eight ten year plan at that point. Um, there was the town next to me was where Microsoft used to have a big headquarters. And so I would pass that building pretty frequently. I'm like, someday I'm going to work there. I'm going to work there. So it's just a big, <laughs> it was up on a hill next to the highway. It was like a weird setting, but it's, it, was, it was sort of like, that was the goal every time I drove by that building. Um, so senior year, I spent all the time researching colleges. So I, you know, I looked at Rensselaer Polytechnic out here in Troy, New York, uh, Carnegie Mellon, MIT, you know, all the all the big software engineering, computer science schools I could possibly think of, um, throw my application at them. My parents, you know, I love them to death. They drove me all over the place to go physically stand on campus to see if I would like being there. Um, and at the end of high school, when I finally started getting all the um, letters back, uh, the the school here at RPI. That was my that was my top school. It was only three hours from where I grew up. I figured it was a good distance to sort of like stay close, um, but still far enough away. I actually got a rejection letter from that school after I got a letter saying that I had a scholarship to the school, which completely didn't make sense. <laughs> and so I was I think I was at work at the time and my mother was calling the school to figure out what was going on. And it turns out they had just mailed me the long, the wrong letter because they had already mailed me a scholarship letter for, um, for one thing. And then, you know, I already had that, I was down on the roller coaster at that point, like, Oh, nah, I got to go to a different school. That was the one I wanted. And then it was like, oops, no, actually you're accepted. <laughs> RPI. I can't remember what that is. That's Rensselaer Polytechnic. Institute. Rensselaer Polytech. Okay. Rensselaer. Yeah, no, that, that wasn't, that wasn't going to be an easy school to get into. So you must have really had the academic chops to, to get in there. Yeah. That, that in high school, um, they, they sent out the scholarship. It was called the Rensselaer medal and they gave it to top math, science and engineering students in high school seniors. Um, and so I got my, I got my school to apply for the medal on my behalf for me, because nobody else in the school was going to apply to it because I was the only one going to that school. So it, it helped quite a bit. Amazing. So you get into, after that roller coaster ride, you realize that you're in this school. Do you stay, do you commute? Do you get to stay on campus? You start the school? No, I, I'm, I moved to, to school. I stayed on campus and I did, I did that, um, which, you know, my college career is another wild roller coaster. <laughs> um, I definitely didn't, didn't do the traditional college route there. Um, having been out at RPI for, for a while, 
um, the roommate that I was living with had moved out to back home for, for personal reasons. Um, so I was sort of like left by myself in, in, in the college dorm. Um, so I'm sort of like navigating most of this, this first school experience, um, three hours away from my parents and I'm very, very close with my family. Um, so being that far away where I just couldn't see them at any given time or call them for an extended period of time on the phone, it, it, it took its toll after a while. Um, school was great, but I think the proximity, proximity being far away from home, being in a different, different area, I just academically, I think I was ready, but personally just wasn't. So I, uh, decided to transfer out of RPI after about a year to a school closer that's similar to RPI. It's a Worcester Polytech Institute in Worcester, Mass, which is only about 45 minutes from where my, where I grew up. And so the, the transition was pretty easy. Um, it was nice. I can, I could go home on the weekend, spend time with my family and my brother. Um, and I spent two years at WPI and that was right around the time where the whole dot-com uh, boom was sort of like happening. 2004. And, yeah. Right. You yeah, graduated where, high school. You did a year, 2001, 2002. So you're, you're starting to get into 2004. Yeah. Um, and I'm sort of like paying attention to college graduates, what they're making, like with what salary expectations are going to be. And when I graduated high school, like they were pretty much what I expected to be able to pay back these private loans that I have in school. Um, and you know, as I was at WPI, it's like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this, this, this engineering thing is going to pan out the way I wanted it to. Like, I, don't, I just don't, I don't see it anymore. So I had a long discussion with my parents. Like, I think, I think I gotta, they gotta change careers slightly. Um, little less heavy on the engineering. Maybe I should do a little bit more business oriented. Um, so another school nearby was uh, Bentley College at the time. I think it's actually Bentley University at this point. Um, they have they had a computer science, but more IT related. So a little more higher level, not as heavy in theory as some of the traditional engineering heavy schools. Um, so I ended up transferring again to Bentley College. Spend a spent a couple more years there, accumulating, learning some of the uh, computer science stuff, but some business aspects. Um, and then that's when everything sort of came like crashing down. <laughs> so hold on a second before we we get there. A couple of questions here. So you're actually losing credits too as you're transferring, right? So yep. so what would have been a four year degree is now turning into like maybe it took you like six years to get it. Yep to get it done. So now it's like about 2006, 2008 is the mortgage crisis, right? That's, I mean, I had a business that completely just crashed in 2008. Like, so you're get you're, you're now moving into this area where the whole economy is about to crash because of these bad mortgages that were being, being out. but you're going to graduate, let's say around 2006 with both a kind of computer science degree and a business degree. Is that where you're at at this point? That's, that's the plan. That was the plan. And yeah, like as these things were sort of like slowly started crashing and I'm looking at, you know, um, all not, not, not only am I losing credits, I'm also accumulating debt <laughs> because they're all three private schools. Right. Um, 
and you know, I'm looking at what these what these loans are going to end up being at the end of the day, and what entry level salaries are for people with my degree. There's a vast discrepancy there, um, and I think I just came to the hard realization. It's like if if I don't just start working now, I'm going to be paying these loans for the rest of my life. Like I'm just not going to be able to catch up. So I actually ended up dropping out of school completely. I never actually graduated when I was supposed to, even after three three schools of transferring. Um, so I went to I went to work full time with the company that I did the high school internship with back in my senior year, as I still had a good rep, um, rapport with them. All right before before you do any more there, before before we go on from there, I can kind of hear in your voice maybe some regret in not finishing that degree. Do you have some regret that you didn't? I mean, in hindsight, it's 2020, right? You have to make decisions. Things happen for a reason. You make decisions in that moment. So I've had to learn not to beat myself up over stuff. But but I kind of get a sense like you're sad that you didn't finish the degree after all that time. Yeah, I mean, at that time, yeah, it was, it was definitely uh, a kick because I spent all that time planning, going to that perfect high school, getting accepted into that, into RPI with the scholarship, like all that just fell in, you know, and I, and I got to where I wanted and to, for it to end the way it did, you know, and making that choice, that was, that was tough. And being one of the very few people in my family too, from my mother and my dad, my dad got his associates, my mother never went to school. So I was the first one that went to a four-year college private school, a good one. I assume that you had conversations with your parents before you made this decision. So sure, yeah. were your parents, I know personally, I would have been leaning on you to finish the degree just because you were so close. I've had to do that with two of my kids already. Um, were they, like, I'm just kind of curious where their head was. As parents, this is the, there's no book as a parent, right? Like, you get into these moments and you don't know anything more than the, <laughs> they didn't know anything more than you did. Right. But they have to give you guidance. So th these are those tough parent moments. So where were your parents had, where were they kind of leaning? My, my dad was more of the, uh, the one that was pushing me to sort of finish because he knew, he knew me better than like my mom did from like a, like a personal level, like where, how I would probably take it. And, you know, he, he, he was the, the the mathematically engineering inclined of the two. Um, and so he had, he, I think he wanted me to do it because he wanted to do it as well. I think he saw a little bit of himself in me to like, okay, my son is where I, I could have been, but he's, he's going to do it this time. He's the one that's going to do it. And so, um, yeah, he was definitely the one sort of like pushing, but not too hard. He was, he was still very supportive because at, in the, at the end of the day, they were both on my side um, after we had these long conversations and realized that, you know, if I graduate and I can't pay for it, the debt's on them too. And we're, we're a middle-class family at that point. We're looking at, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in school loans. It's, it was, it would be financially irresponsible in the long run to, to continue on. I mean, that's a really mature level of thinking even at that time right because at this point you're 22 23 i mean it's still i mean 
you think at, at, at every age you are, you think you're like the most mature human being. And then you look at your, you mind, you look at yourself 10 years ago and you're like, God, I knew nothing. But no, I know everything now. And I'm 52. And I know when I'm 62, I'm going to look at myself at 52 and go, Bill, you were so clueless, right? So, yeah, right. I mean, you can look back at the time and look at it, but it's still a very mature sort of approach to thinking. Like, you know, I have to be re financially responsible here at this moment in time. Yeah, even grow, growing up, like when I wanted to play hockey, hockey was a very expensive sport. As a goalie, all the equipment we have to buy. And I remember my my dad was always putting in those extra hours, you know, working, working for the town and then going out, being called out two o'clock in the morning to plow the snow for people in the next morning. So I always saw that. I was always very close to that. And I knew the sacrifices that he made to pay for all of the stuff that my brother and I wanted to do. Um, so when I, I, I think I just got hit with that financial responsibility really early. And when it came time to make that choice, it's like, I can't keep doing that to you. Like, that's not fair. <laughs> You've already done so much. And at some point, you know, I need to take accountability for myself. And this is the choice that I make for my future. So it's fantastic that this company had headcount for you at the time too then, right? So, so you got, um, can, can I ask you what your starting salary was now coming out of school and you go back to this job? I mean, cause let me put it this way. The first job that I took at a university, which was back in 1992 when the economy was in really bad shape, I took it for 18,000 a year because I spent six months looking for a job and I needed, I needed to start building a resume. I, I was actually grateful at $18,000 a year just to say I was working, you know, this is like in 92. So I'm just kind of curious at that point, you go back to this company. Yeah, I think it was around the twenties at that point, somewhere in there, mid twenties, 25, something like that. Um, and I was still living at home, so I didn't have any rent to pay. So it was, it was fine. Um, you know, I, I could, you know, sort of buy my own food and I chipped in where I needed to chip in. But you were grateful for the job, right? It really I was. Mean... Yeah. I mean, I learned quite a bit, quite a bit. Like I, I, I really got to dig into not only like the web, you know, web design side, but it was, it was application programming. It was using server side logic connected to databases. So it was ASP 3.0 with Microsoft Access databases running on a server that was 10 feet in the other office. Um, what was this business doing? Just real quick, like what, what was the problem they were solving? They were um, selling their web, uh, web application services to uh, financial mutual fund companies. So all their mutual fund companies had this raw sales data from all of their representatives across the United States. And so they, they would send this company all of the raw sales data. We would dump it into an access database and then we would write online reports to allow them to um, sort of analyze the data across different facets, whether we group them by location or by sales rep or by, you know, um, upper and lower bound of sales numbers. Um, Cause at that time, doing something like that in Excel was hard. All right. So how long are you at this company? You're, I'm imagining you're there for a couple more years. We're, we're getting into 2008 or something like. Yeah, I was there for, I was there for quite a while. Um, I think due to some sort of small business financial issues, I was actually let go from that. Uh, and a few of us were actually let go from that 
um, from that job at that point, unfortunately. Um, but I put a significant amount of, of years in that sort of understanding sort of roughly how web servers work, how dynamic stuff on the server works. And I know what databases were and rows and columns and primary keys and sort of up, you know, all of that, that I didn't really cover at the, at the time in college. So that was like sort of my first exposure to most of this. Um, and then I, since I was still living at home, now I'm not making any money, even though I don't really have to pay rent. I'm sort of a, you know, late twenties freeloader in my parents' house. It's like, I'm not contributing at all at this point. Um, so I had to go find another job and the, oddly enough, after applying through, I think monster.com was still, I don't know if it's still popular at this point, but monster was like the big job website that you could apply through. Um, I happened to randomly post reply to a post on Craigslist that a recruiter was looking for somebody for a job at higher education. Like, okay, well, I'll try that one. Um, and that turned out that I got the job at Harvard university working in their IT department in the graduate school of public health. Wow. That must've been exciting. That was, that was a while. It was a wild interview. And I spent six or seven years at that job. On well, campus. On campus, on... yep. Taking the train into Boston. Um, yeah, that was, a, that was a really good, that was a really good job. That was, that was more of an extension to what I was doing currently, like doing online forms and working with databases. But now I got into more technical stuff in that job. So I, I have a couple of questions for you because you're now kind of, living a life back on campus did was it exciting for you to be on that campus did it bring back like bad memories that you didn't get to finish your degree was there ever a thought that maybe you could go to school there since you were working there yeah and, and fortunately because i was an employee of harvard those employees get ridiculous discounts to take classes so i took advantage of that and did the full-time job from eight to five and did night classes at the Harvard Extension School to chip more away at the at the degree I never got. So um, I didn't start doing that for probably a couple of years until I started there, um, just to get my feet, you know, on solid ground working there and focus on that mostly. But yeah, started chipping away a class at a time. Didn't want to overdo it because I was still still late twenties, early thirties, still wanted to have somewhat of a life outside of work and school. Um, and because I had a, a good job, the, the degree completion at this point is, was more of a, um, just a personal goal. Um, I'm seeing more and more people getting jobs without degrees because of the, uh, the boot camps that were sort of emerging at that point, or just, and there was so many online resources you could sort of teach yourself and get a good technical job. So the, the weight of a college degree and an application was sort of getting less and less. So I didn't put too much pressure on completing the degree at that point, but sort of chipping away at it as, as I went. And when do you, when do you finish at What year do you finish this job at Harvard? I'm trying to get a timetable here. I think you started around, did you start around 2006 maybe and or 2008 maybe? 
How long were you there for? Like about four seven years? Year, seven years. So I think it was like around 2012. Wow. You were there for seven years. So you're somebody that, do you consider yourself somebody that like, you don't, you don't take change lightly, right? Like you were at the other job for a long time. Now you're here for seven years. Um, what, what, so there has to be something interesting that causes you to, to leave this job. So what, what happened seven years later? I moved back to New York. You moved back to New York. I, yeah. I moved. So when I started RPI, when I started RPI, this was in Albany, Troy area. Um, and so I had an idea of like what this area was way back um, when I graduated high school. And um, so at that time, I actually moved out here and lived full time. And I sort of, I guess for lack of a better term, I sort of gave Harvard an ultimatum. Like, I'm moving. I would love to still work for you. Can I work remote? <laughs> They're like, well, we haven't tried it yet. I'm like, okay, well, let's see how it goes. So they were fortunate, like they were great and accommodating enough for like to let me move back out here. And I, I spent the money. I, I dedicated a room in my uh, condo at that point, just an office, nothing else, no other distractions. Um, and I would go, I would drive back to Boston once a month to spend at least two days there in person with everybody else. So I would still feel like I'm part of the team. Um, and I did that again for the the last two years of that seven year stint. Did it, was it that you just wanted to get back home and be with family again? Like, I'm just, if we can talk about it, I'm just kind of interested what made you decide after, I guess, five years, you just didn't like living there anymore. My son gets like this. He's just, dad, I don't want to be here anymore. Just, all right, go. Yeah, you know, it wasn't that I because I would like like you said before, I'm I'm not I don't take change lightly. Um, I was paying attention to the housing market in the area and housing prices around Boston where I grew up. I would never be able to afford a house like not even close. Even now, like forget it. So, you know, I, I knew I was out and I picked places that I've been before. Like I looked in Worcester and I looked in um Waltham where Bentley College is and I looked in Albany Troy and yeah I mean I, I understood the area and I looked at the housing prices out there I'm like that's a little bit more attainable <laughs> it's nowhere close to Boston housing prices that is super fair because I left New York Long Island for one of the similar I wanted the warmer weather in Miami but I knew I could buy a house and start a family there and I couldn't out on Long Island like it was never going to happen so I totally appreciate this idea that you get to a point where you're like, you know, I'd like to have a house. Maybe I'd like to have a family. I'd like to have these things and I can't have it here. So I'm going to move. Okay. That, that is, that's, that's, I had the same exact thoughts. Um, same. Okay. So Harvard lets you work remote for a couple more years. Right. And then is it you that decides, you know what, I, I want to be back in an office space or there's, there's another opportunity kind of, this is now 2012, right? Yeah, it ended up being another opportunity because once I got out here, um, I, I wanted to find other people like me. Like, who, where, are the, where are the other software people in Troy and Albany? Like, how can I go and hang out with them? Because I could go to work and go in an office and hang out with them back home or 
I could walk down the street in Boston and throw a stone and probably hit somebody in the in the technical field. But now I'm in Troy, New York. Like, who does who even works around there that does this stuff? <laughs> so, jump on Twitter and Reddit and all the other like social networks at the time and Facebook to see if I can find other people who touch a computer at this point. Like, I don't care. Um, and I found a local meetup back when meetups were a thing. They met monthly at a local bar. They didn't even, you know, uh, bring their computers with them. They just hung out at the bar and chatted and just got to know each other. And once I found that one, I found two more. And from those two, I found five more. I'm like, oh, wow. Like there's a sizable community here of engineers and software people and designers. And this is great. Like, I think I found my my tribe, my people out here. And uh, because of those meetups is where one of the guys that I had run into, he was working for Agora Games right in Troy. Um, they did a lot of backend services, matchmaking in um, online profile systems for games like Guitar Hero and, and other big... Uh, big AAA titles. And he had announced that he was leaving that job and wanted to start his own studio to do the same thing. And so I sort of like latched onto him a little bit and chatted with him through a bunch of meetups. And when he posted that um, he was looking for a, a P, I think it was a PHP developer at that time um, because he had a contract that needed some PHP work. I sort of jumped at it and, uh, that was the start of Mad Glory. There was the it was him, me, and two other people that sort of opened the doors at that point. We didn't even have an office. We were sort of working in a coffee shop at that point. Um, you know, I have a couple of questions. I've got oh, hold on. This is interesting because this change you're about to make from a institution that is God knows how many years old, right, to this startup. I mean. This isn't just a change, right? There's risk kind of in this as well, right? So a couple questions. Like this must have been a – was this a difficult thing for you to do or you were just kind of like I think mentally ready? And did you have to take a pay cut? Did you get to keep your salary? Was there other things that you had to, to do in order to kind of make this jump? Um, it was it was more mental preparation than, than logistical or financial or anything else. Um I got a, I got a raise when I got that job. Um, yeah, it was, it was the risk of startup, but as I was, as the more I spoke with, um, the guy that started the studio, like he's, he had a vast network of, of clients from his previous job in the gaming industry. So, um, Riot Games, the EA, like he, he knew people all over the place. So, which is why, starting the studio is was easy for him to do it because he could almost guarantee the work right he had revenue coming in on these projects that you were going to help fulfill so they could focus on the gaming side yep and he and he was only hiring based on need too so he already signed the contract he committed to doing the project with no people so he got the contracts and now he was going out to hire and so that's where i I came in with another with another friend of mine as well. So we both, my friend and I, jumped in the, one of the projects that um, had no people. 
So we were the ones to do it. 2012. So how long are you, how long are you at this place? Uh, I think that's probably another three to five years, somewhere around there at that point. And we grow, that, that company grows from four to 30. 30 people working on a product though, right? Like he's working on a game product. No, these are, it's all professional services. So it ended up being a professional services company. Yeah. So Maglory was, was all professional services, but the clients were traditionally game studios. Yep. Gotcha. So what kind of, what was the most exciting project you got to work on in those say five years? One of them was a, a code redemption system for mobile games. So the, the, the studio would send us millions of codes for, for their mobile games. And we would have to sort of load them into this, uh, into this system. They would send an email blast out to all the players or all the email addresses they had accounts for with, uh, custom redemption links and, uh, all those, all those emails, when the players would click on them, they would get a free code pulled from the database. And like, it would, it would be a dedicated code specifically for that person. And they could redeem that code in game for a skin an item sort of randomly generated, um, from a, from a list of, of stuff they wanted to give away. And so, um, they came to us with nothing. They just, cause it was a marketing project. So they had no technical experience. They just said, well, we have, we want to be able to distribute codes. It's like, how do we do it? Like, oh, okay. So we had to put together an attack plan of where to host it, what tech to use, um, and, uh, sort of empower them to sort of use the system as well. So that was, that was one of the fun ones. You were there so early on. I would have imagined that there must have been talk about you being more than just an employee at some point, right? Was that ever a consideration for you? Like you were going to be a, a bigger part of the business, a partner of some form or another? Yeah, I think it, I never really pushed it, but I think as sort of time went on, more and more responsibilities were just came my way. And so I, I just took them as they came. Um, and I liked it rather than spending heads down writing code six to eight hours a day. It was now coding like four hours a day, other times in meetings, like talking with um, potential customers or, or even helping new employees that, that got ramped up. I remember one of, one of my favorite, one of my best friends at this point, he used to work on wall street. Um, he was in the, the, the stock trading business and he, but he went to school for computer science. So he had a, computer science background, but he wanted to get back into software engineering. And so he lived locally. He had a, a good contact with a few of the people that we were working with and he got hired and him and I so got put on a project together and he was still like getting his feet wet again, doing software engineering, coming from wall street trading. And so, um, most of my time there was just pairing with him and helping him get back back to where he wanted to be. And now, uh, yeah, now he's actually co-founder of one of his own studios at this point that they opened up, I think about six months ago. So he's, he's having a great time. It sounds to me like this ended up being a good decision to go, to, uh, go in the startup, but what ends up happening, let's say in 2017 or so that causes you to decide to move on from this? Um, we at that, at Mad Glory, we sort of, 
thought that there was a good market fit for um, streaming video because at that time Netflix was was in the streaming business. I think Hulu is around, um, and those are the really the only like big players at this point, like doing the big streaming stuff. But like since we were in gaming, we had access to developer kits for Xbox and some of the other ones, and we figured like, well, Xbox people are watching video in this. Like, what if we could build a build a company or a product and sell? to other companies that have video content, but they have no means to distribute or YouTube is the only way right now. What if we could give them or build a platform so that they could have their own dedicated branded app that you could install on your phone or you could install on your Xbox and watch their video content. Um, and so we, we spun out a few of us from Mad Glory, left Mad Glory, officially created Odd Networks um, and we started to really push that that SaaS project. Um, what were you doing for funding there to put milk on the table? It was all self-funded. Um, it was an original investment from the the owner of Mad Glory. He so he stayed with Mad Glory, but he initially funded um, Odd Networks to get it off the ground and get it rolling. We had a pre-existing customer with Mad Glory. That was more in the video spaces where it sort of kind of kicked off. And so that customer shifted over as a, as a paying customer for odd networks. So it helped where we already, we already had a customer. Um, and we started odd networks with, I think only four people. So we wanted to keep it slim. We had an Android engineer, an iOS engineer, um, and a few like uh, backend engineers for backend services or, or like a front end as well. So how much runway did you have with that initial funding? Did you have like a two year runway you thought? Uh, I think we only had about a year. A year, a year runway to, to get enough, to start getting enough revenue in to pay for it. So what I, what I, how long were you, how long, tell me the timetable there and, and because this is your first stint in actually being a business owner, right? Like you're this one, this business you're you're an ownership you have ownership in, right? Yeah, it, that that was more of the, the the scarier part, just having more of an insight into the financials and the stability of a company that not only puts food on my table but food on the table of other people. Um, and while I wasn't like the primary owner of all the financials, like we sort of we had one person that was dedicated to, to handling that, but we all knew week over week what it looked like. And it was both scary and helpful to, to just sort of like get insight into that constantly. So the, the, the biggest push there is like, we knew we had a, like a stable platform and a product. It was only, it was a matter of going to find the people to pay for it. Um, selling, selling and marketing is hard. Yeah. Which is, not even close to being into my wheelhouse. So luckily we had a, we had a contact that was the sort of like willing to, to do this. And so he, he joined, he, he was doing odd networks, doing most of that, you know, CEO kind of operational sales and marketing kind of role because he, he was in the net, he was in the tech space. So he understood all of it, but he needed to actually go out and sell most of the stuff. 
uh, trying to get this in front of people. Um, we did well for a while, but then um, we just sort of realized that after after trying to sell something like a product like this, because of the barriers of delivering a product through all the mobile uh, mobile distributors like Google, Amazon, and iOS and Apple. Um, that was hard. Like the, the, the cycle for that was hard. It took a lot of manpower, um, to do it. If we needed to, if we had a customer with an app on every platform in existence, we need to push an update. You got to do that all over again. So, and that could take days or weeks, depending on what's going on. Yeah. The logistics you have logistics. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're, we're sort of looking at like the, 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 the power, the resource and the per people power needed to do that while scaling the customers to come in. We just knew there was just more bodies and more bodies. And when we started to think about if we go to investors for funding and we put them, we put this model in front of them that we need people to get more customers to get more money. That's kind of not a SaaS product. That's not what people want to invest in, right? They want to build build the software that's automated as much as possible. That three, five, ten x is the the income. Yeah, it's not a pure platform because you have to white label the client and 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 get it delivered. Yeah, I I was in a little bit of that at the time with a company too back in two thousand and I guess like two thousand four too. The, the logistics are tough, so I get it. So. So then what, what, and you can't just turn this into a regular, well, why didn't you just consider to become the next Hulu or Netflix and, and walk away from the white labeling? Um, because we also saw that the, where the money was being spent in that space was video encoding. And if you follow the rabbit, if you open up any app on your, on your TV and you follow the rabbit hole far enough, down the chain of that video, you just end up with some some recipe that a company is using FFmpeg on some hardware because I'm taking my raw video, uploading it to the cloud, and then somehow it makes it into all distributable formats, web, iOS, Android. Oh, so something's just chopping that up automatically, automagically. Automagically. So you could have a single raw video file that you recorded turn into 20 different variations, depending on the platform that you're looking at in different resolutions and bit rates. Um, and if you look at any of the big like transcoding companies out there, um, Akamai, uh, Bitmovin, Brightcove, any of those, like that's once you go far enough, that's what's happening. So you decide then that you're going to close down odd networks at that point? Yeah, I, I didn't make that choice. I left before the closure. I think there was like a year after that that they decided to, to close that. Um, I made a shift into another, another startup that seemed to scale better. What year is that then? Are we talking 2018? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. 2018, 19. Um, this startup was out of New York City, um, and they were in the IoT space. So this was when like IoT was getting a little bit more popular, or more devices were getting more connected. So it seemed appealing that 
if I was to make a career shift, like I'm still doing software stuff, but the space is different. Let me get out of entertainment, out of gaming. Let me, I want to do something else. Um, got into IoT and they manufactured and sold pager sized devices to warehouse and manufacturing companies. So the warehouse workers would wear them on their hip and throughout the day, if they had bent or twisted or moved in an improper fashion, it would buzz. What? Alerting, alerting them that they would probably, that you probably just picked that box up wrong and you're going to hurt yourself. They were trying to do this to keep their insurance rates down. Why else would you do this to somebody? Exactly. Yep. That was, that was the, that was the ploy. So, um, the company built the whole software platform on the cloud to analyze the data as it's streamed uh, up from the pages at the end of the day, but there was also software on the devices that use some machine learning models um, to infer in real time, the accelerometer, the gyroscope and the altitude of the device itself. Oh my God. And you're Latin long. Like I know where you are at all times. Does this product still out there? Our company yeah. still there, still exists. I feel like, I feel like, I don't know. I guess I'm privileged enough to say, I don't know if I'd work there if I had to have a. <laughs> but it's funny, like, uh, actually, surprisingly, um, one of the very big technical challenges of this product was all of the warehouses um, that this pager ended up in. They're basically black boxes. Like, there's no signal in and out. It's almost impossible to get real-time data off them. So I, I have no idea what that device is when it's being worn throughout an eight-hour day. At the end of the day, when that worker puts it on the charging dock, that's when it triggers the Wi-Fi to turn on and send everything up. It was asynchronous. It was data gathering during the day. And then, but still, I mean, you could build maps of everywhere they walked that day. Interesting. Wow. So you got to work remote, I assume, because you like living in Troy. And then what happens there? How long? You're only there for like a year then? Yeah, about a year. And then I, I sort of, I, so I was really brought on because I was one of the only go people in the area. Like uh, another guy that was working remotely for the company was a good friend of mine. And so he, he came to me and off and proposed the job that I come in and, and sort of help out um, because nobody at the company at that point had any significant experience with go. And they had a lot of it just because they thought it was a good idea to use. Um, and so most of my time was sort of like, cleaning up refactoring and slimming and yeah i was gonna say you must have seen a lot of code in your brain like oh yeah oh yeah one of my first uh one of the first projects i had to tackle was because there was go on the actual device the wearable doing the uh the the sensor mo uh, modeling and um they were seeing like beca and because the device was all battery powered um they needed the software to run pretty efficiently Otherwise the battery would drain faster and they had a mark that they needed the device to last at least 10 hours. And they were at the 11 hour, they were at the 11 hour mark. Um, and they would wanted to start selling to other customers that had more longer work shifts, but they couldn't because sometimes the device wouldn't make that. So one of my first fortes into profiling head first was figuring out why the ghost software on the device was just chewing through battery so fast. Was it garbage collection running too much? Cause the memory footprint on those things was small. Uh, yeah, it was, it was garbage collection. Um, and the original author of the, 
um, the software had a lot of go routines and they sort of treated it as like a message bus oh. in the binary and they didn't correlate to the fact that the device was a, was a, a single core. So they just had all this stuff happening all at once. So once I single threaded everything and I ripped all that out, I think I got the device to run in, um, I think it was something like 18 hours, something ridiculous. Like I had to profile it a bunch of times just to make sure that it was right. It just seemed crazy. It saved that much. Yeah, a lot of inefficiency for such a small. So actually, I'm interested. I don't know if you've played with Rust, but my brain would say Rust is probably a better. Rust would have been. I think it was way too, way too new. Uh, now, I think if I had to redo it, I would, I would do Rust at that point. Some people love that kind of work, and some people just want to do new greenfield kind of work. So it takes, it takes the right person to jump in that sort of environment and say, we're going to spend time cleaning up code. I, I love cleaning up code. Like, um, I, I enjoy, I, I enjoy refactoring. So was that work enjoyable to you or were you more like, I really wish I could start something new? No, I, I do like doing the new stuff. Um, but I think I just have a knack for doing the refactoring, especially when it's not only is the goal is actual performance and numbers, but if another human being has to join the team and be productive, like I love that kind of refactoring too. So part of that was, you know, we're going to hire you. Our stuff is slow and it sucks and we need to fix it. Like it works, but we need it better. We need to mature this product as a technical level, but we need to have other people contribute and not take days and weeks to add features. Like how do we do that? Um, so that was very much on the top of my mind. And as new people joined the team, I got to mentor, um, a new person that had never touched Go in his life. So he got to learn Go at the first, uh, at the start. Um, he ended up leaving. He went to Bitly as a senior Go engineer. So he's loving it. He's loving his life now. Um, so yeah, that would, that's a, that's a big uh, benefit when I get to refactor code is to make sure other people can understand it too. All right. So we got about 10 minutes left here and I want to kind of get a sense of what makes you um, leave this company I, is is um, where you are now um, kind of the next job no there was a job in between actually so I left what I felt like that company was stable at that point and um, I contributed what I did like the the team was solid there um, I got another opportunity to work with all the people that I work with at Maglory and odd networks they wanted to do another um, another sort of gaming consultancy because mad glory at the time ended up getting purchased by PUBG, player unknown battleground so all of their contracts that they were working with had to go away as they became PUBG. and so there was an opportunity for us to start a similar kind of studio um adapt and change what we learned what we liked what we didn't like from that studio and and sort of pick up where we where we left up there and we took we took some of the contracts and sort of ran with them. What I find interesting, Blaine, is you started your career with these long-term stints, right? And now it's like after a year, you have no even reservation of going on to something new now after a year or two, if it's not really where 100% of where you want it to be. Is that true? Yeah, and I think it just comes down to the fact that I, I'm, confident enough in my my technical skills that i could make a change and be successful somewhere but i think all the lessons that i learned 
Um, I'm confident enough in the decisions that I've made. So I think decisions I make while they're shorter, if I make them, chances are they're pretty good for me. So I don't have to spend long times making sure that um, it's going to be a good move. Um, and you're not burning bridges because you were able to come back to all the mad dog people and they were open arms. Right. Yeah. So we did that. We started that company. We, we uh, started that one, I think about a year and a half. It went from five people to 30 people. I was on three different projects at the time, starting out building the, the, the framework, hiring junior and mid-level engineers, training them up, getting them to lead them. I move on to a different project. So there was a cycle of me. I'm on a project for six months. It's good. You take over. I'm going to go start this one. And that's sort of like most of the senior engineers in the project on the, on the company did this. So we went from five to 30. And then it got to a point where I was doing less and less coding, more of like managing stuff, which is I could do, I could fake it. I'm, I could be okay at it, but it wasn't where my heart was. Um, but at the time I came across a networking project, which like, package shifting, all of that fun stuff um, that I'm doing now. And so when the opportunity came up with subspace to be a senior engineer at that level, um, but spend a large bulk of my time in the kernel on a socket dealing with this stuff, like high speed networking traffic, it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to go back and do that more. So what's fascinating to me, Blaine, is at the end of the day, you always end up being the coach and mentor in the shop and you're really good at it and more shops need coaches and mentors to help with like i feel like this is the big lack that we have in the industry really good coaches and mentors right but every time you get into that role you're like no i got to get back i got to get back into the into the trench and just be an engineer again right yeah well what's interesting about subspace is that you know i was I was interviewed under that premise. It's like, we need, we have a lot of software and go. We have some good go people here on the team specifically that you're joining. Like we want you to bring that, that, that knowledge that you have and like bring it forward. Um, but I think just the breadth of technology at subspace um, being that it's a hundred, almost a hundred people right now, 40 of which are engineers. Um, I mean, I could never stop learning from a technical side. We have, I'm, mostly in the Go side, some of the Linux side, um, but there's Elixir, there's Python, there's JavaScript, there's um, eBPF code, there's C, um, network management, like all of that stuff is just at my fingertips. And we work on cross-functional teams. So I'm sitting next to a guy on my project right now. He's hardcore C and that's all he wants to do. And he's never seen really even touch go before. And so we're constantly bouncing back and forth between the two. Um, so it's, it's, it's really good. Like I coach him, he can coach me, but we we're both been in the industry for over 15 years. So none of us, neither one of us are mid-level junior people, but we could sort of coach ourselves in that fashion and get that feedback. I feel like this is, the first opportunity or first job you've had where you really feel like home, like you feel like this isn't going to be transient. I'm not here for any other reason, but I really, really want to be here. I, I think even the other, the, the job just before this, you were, it was still a transition for you just to, 
Like, is that true? I mean, that's the sense I'm getting from you. Like, this is the job you've always wanted. Yeah, because after I've only, like I said, I've only been here since December, and like I've I've pushed to production a number of times. I've fixed a bunch of bugs that have been lingering before I started. I've I feel technically valuable. Um, I can learn from the other engineers that are sort of at my level in the industry. Um, and it's not always coding. There's there's um, there's design review docs that we have to create. We have to work with the product and marketing people to figure out where where should where we should be focusing. Um, so it just feels like a very well-oiled machine um, that I can take in my expertise over the past twenty odd years that I've been doing this. Which is what I want to bring up, Brilliant, because you're now in your in your forties, right? I mean, you have forty to as of Thursday. Last okay. Week. <laughs> happy happy birthday, Blaine. When I was in my starting my 40s, I had just completely failed out of my first business. And I always had this fear of aging out. Like, am I going to age out at some point? Right. So as you get into your 40s here, are you are the, and maybe I didn't mean to put this into your head now, but do you have these ideas of like, I can't necessarily be an engineer my whole life either. I might age out or do you feel like this need to, I don't know, like I decided to start a second business because I felt it was the only way I could secure not just a financial future for me and my kids, but to not age out, not to have somebody say you're too old and now you want too much money. I don't need that. I don't need you. And then what, right? Like I had these fears going into my forties, um, so I'm just curious for other people that are listening, right? Do, do you have this sense of ever aging out? And, and no, not not as it not as it currently stands. Because as I sort of look at the landscape of of subspace now, and I, you know, this uh, kudos to them. It's like they're they know the space they're in is is a hard technical space. So a lot of the people that they do hire are are very much in a niche, and they've had years of experience into it, which is why it's as it, it's as successful as it is because it is a hard space. Um, so they're not hiring just because you know C, it's because you have years of knowing and understanding the idiosyncrasies of C or of Go or working on cross-functional teams. And you can only get that experience with time. Um, and so they're, they're sort of celebrating that having most of their engineers as senior and above at this point. If the company grows, maybe more junior mid-level sort of come in. But um, for me, I think there's, there's definitely a home for quite a while. And there's definitely no fear of aging out at this point. So here's my next question. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this again because of your age here, right? Uh, my dad had a pension. The, the, this concept of a pension doesn't exist anymore. So this, this, my head always said, I need to have a business. That's my pension. So I, I have, like, so as you're getting into now in your forties, right? Are you, are, are you thinking about retirement at all? Are you thinking about how am I going to put enough money away? So I maybe at 55, 60, I don't have to work. This is the time to do it now, right? The forties is when you really need to start thinking about it. Well, funny thing is I already started this about five, six years ago. I've, I've been dumping money into my retirement accounts for the past five to six years at this point. So, you know, I, when I, every time I talk with my financial advisor about retirement, I'm like, what does that 
what does that mean? I don't sit in this room here and I go sit in that room over there. Like, what does that mean for me? I understand from, from a traditional tradesperson's point of view, the plumber doesn't have to go to work anymore. Like he's done. <laughs> he doesn't have to go be physical labor. Um, so the concept of retirement is just weird to me. So for me, so the way I see it, Blaine, is retirement doesn't mean I, I, I'm not working and being active. It means that if my life flips upside down tomorrow, I have a steady income. I don't see it as, I see it as, do I, do I have enough money in the bank where at 5% a year, I have enough income to put milk on the table and, and pay the mortgage? That's kind of where I want to be at. And then I decide I don't want to work. I don't have to work. But it's about income for me. Can I generate income without having to wake up this morning and be on my feet, right? Yeah. And and that's close to where I'm thinking. You know, I, I did just start like blindly putting stuff away in a 401k because my financial advisor told me to. Um, I'm, I know enough at this point in my life that I need to trust the people that are experts in their field. And if she told me, you need to put X amount of money away a month to retire at 65. Okay. So that's what I've been doing. So I, I have a great resource in her. She is managing the money that I'm putting away and she's putting it into the right things, understanding my goals. Um, the, the only way I could answer the question that she posed was, you know, how much do you want to make when you retire? Like, and she asked me this at 35, like, you want to, you want to, in 30 years, you want me to guess what that is? I'm like, I don't know what I'm making now. How about that? How about that? We'll, we'll adjust as we go. And so we, we started with that assumption and that's where it is. Um, since joining subspace that has wildly, f uh, flipped <laughs> upside down because, um, you know, now I'm in a, just in a different financial situation where I have to be a little bit more creative, but you know, once the 65 markets, I should be okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you answering that because now, like I have my kids who are in their twenties just starting out. I make them put, I don't make them, I can't force them, but I've got them at least moving some paycheck, part of their paycheck into like Edward Jones. And I told them, if you can, if you don't stop doing this in like 20 years, you're going to be a millionaire. I promise you, you're not going to ever have to worry about money again. You're going to hit 40 and not have to worry about money. Where at 40, I had to actually start, like I lost the first 20 years of my life with other problems, right? So like 40 is the next 20. And so that's, that's I just want to kind of have that conversation for people that are listening. All right, two couple last couple things before we have to end here. And I, this conversation has been, been great. Um, do you still seem to have some regret not getting that college degree? I kind of sensed it, but I feel like you're in this beautiful place right now. And I think things happen for a reason. And maybe you're not here if you get that done, right? You don't know. But I still get a sense that you wish you had the, you had the degree, the paper. Well, we can rewind back to 2020 in March when the uh, COVID hit. That's the year I actually finally graduated because I went back to school. <laughs> We kind of all like, those credits were still. Ah, uh, no, I spent actually like um, two years going to the SUNY Empire here here in New York, all remote, just continuing. I transferred a bunch of stuff in. Um, it was right after one of the first Gopher Cons when I sort of like when I start really getting into the nitty gritties of Go and sort of 
um, listening to talks from um, Pike and everybody else that had those traditional computer science degrees. I'm like, that's the cool stuff. That's cool stuff I missed. Like I should go back and learn, like and actually finish. So I- uh, So it was the content that was important to you. Yeah, it ended up being the content. Like I don't, it had nothing to do with a job or anything like that. It's like, I just wanted, I needed to keep learning and I needed to close that. I love that I closed that chapter. Um, I'm debating on even a master's degree at this point at 40 years old. It's going to advance my career. Probably not, but it's the content. Dude, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really happy you did that. I, I got a sense that that for you personally was an important sort of milestone and it's kind of brilliant. You got that done. That's okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right, Blaine, we are out of time, bro. This was such an enjoyable conversation. We could keep talking, but we're, that's it. We did it. We did our hour. So if anybody who's listening to this uh, wants to reach out to you to talk to you, uh, share anything with you, what's the best way for them to to uh, get to you? Uh, Twitter's probably the best way. Um, send me a DM. It's just Blaine Smith, all one word. Um, icon's just a black and white guy with a beard. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's probably the best. I'll, I'll answer anything you got. Always open. Brilliant. Very, very well. And if you jump on Twitter and follow Blaine, you'll see him throwing um, my body weight like four times over his head, which <laughs> I really do enjoy those tweets, by the way. Like, I love you're sharing the videos of, of the hard work you're putting. I know how hard, how much hard work that is. And to do it every single day without fail is just mind blowing. So keep sharing that stuff, at least for me. I, I love seeing that in my timeline. Some of my favorite tweets in my timeline every day. Yeah, I'm trying to add some personality to the Twitter feed other than just like cool, interesting tech stuff. I'm like, well, we'll bring in some physical activity too. See what see how it goes. <laughs> but, but I just love like you saying, this is my goal. I want to get to like 500. I want to be able to lift 500 pounds over my head. And, uh, and now I'm at 480. So now I'm like every day rooting for you, waiting for the, the 500 tweet to hit, right? Like, well, I appreciate it. It's coming soon. I'll, I'll get there. It's amazing. If we had time, I'd love to talk about that, but we are out. So, Blaine, thank you again for hanging out with us. This is the Arden Labs podcast. Thanks for spending time with Blaine and I, and hope to see everybody again real soon.